Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. That being said, will you stand with me? We're going to read from God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. This will be kind of our driving passage for the day. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, if it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. We're his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. All right, special day today. Before I bring our guest on stage, let me introduce him like this. Uh, if you were anything like me over the last couple of years, you felt a, maybe a couple of feelings in your, your leadership. Um, one, I felt lost, felt lost in leadership. I'm sorry, but I slept through the global pandemic 101 class in seminary, apparently cheated through the exam because there were times I had no idea what to do. Uh, and second, sometimes it felt like I was just going crazy. I felt like I'd stand on stage and like, say things that were biblical and grounded in cross-shaped love and then people would just explode and email and leave and all the things and I'm like, what is going on here? So um, a little over a year ago, I was talking with our elder board about that and, uh, and I was like, I, th- I think I need a mentor. And they're like, I think you need a mentor. And uh, we agreed that I should pursue somebody who could help keep me sane. Uh, so uh, when they kind of freed me to do that, I made a top, by the way, young people, for the entirety of your life have a mentor who's double your age, who's been there, done that, who you can share with, who can invest in you, who can guide you down the the straight and narrow, have a mentor. So I I made a short list of my top three uh, people and I was convinced when I made my my short list that none of these people uh, would mentor me because they were all high flying leaders. Like they were were leading large organizations, best-selling books, whatever, but I just thought, you know, you might as well ask, the worst they can say is no, or they'll just ignore the email. The number one person on my list was a guy named Rich Stearns. Right? Um, and uh, the reason why I uh, asked Rich was for, well, for a few reasons. One, he was the uh, president 
of World Vision from 1998 to 2018. Many of you will know World Vision. Uh, literally, he was responsible for raising billions of dollars in order to serve tens of millions of children in impoverished communities all over the world. He has a heart for justice, compassion, and the poor, and that's in my heart, and I like that. He also had written two books that were very impactful to me. One of them I read in seminary. It was a book called A Hole in Our Gospel. Everybody should buy and read this book, A Hole in Our Gospel. Um, and I'll go and tell you this, this is before I even knew Northeast Christian Church existed, but I read that book and I knew in that moment that one day I wanted to lead a Love the Ville church that prioritized servanthood and generosity. That seed got planted then with that book. Now, the second book he wrote was a little bit more recently. Um, he wrote a book called Lead Like It Matters to God. I read it over the course of the pandemic. And uh, when I read this book, I thought, I wish everyone in my church could read this. Let me say that again. I wish everyone in my church would read this. By the way, if anyone in our church can't afford this, I'll buy it for you because I wish everyone in our church would read this because in it, he lays out this interesting framework of leadership called values-based leadership, which we'll talk about more in a second. But it so deeply resonated with me and it sounded to me what an ambassador of Christ should look like in the workspace. So all that being said, I wrote this guy an email, said, hey, shot in the dark, I doubt you've ever like, I don't know, mentor to pastor, but would you be willing to mentor a pastor? We met on Zoom and he said, you know, I haven't ever mentored a pastor before. And also I'm retired, <laughs> but I think I'll give this a shot because uh, I, I see something in you and I see something in your church. And so uh, fast forward eight, nine months later, Rich has been a mentor to me. He's kept me saying over the last nine months and I've learned a ton from him. And I get the great opportunity to welcome him on stage today to talk a little bit about taking Jesus to the workspace. So would you welcome uh, my mentor and my friend, Rich Stearns, to the stage. Come on out, Rich. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate you, man. All right, well, let's just, uh, they, some people might have read your books, but some people might not know you from Adam. So let's just start with some general biographical <coughs> stuff. Tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, 70 years and 70 seconds, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyways, just uh, in terms of my life and career, um, went to Cornell University and majored in neurobiology and animal behavior. Mm -hmm. And uh, the animal behavior part has helped me during the, my career, but the neurobiology, not so much. <laughs> um, and uh, graduated from Cornell and realized that nobody was going to hire a brain surgeon with a bachelor's degree. Uh, so I thought, well, I don't really want to go into medical school. Or, uh, so I looked at business school and went to the Wharton School and got an MBA in business. And my first job was selling shaving cream uh, and deodorant for Gillette in Boston. And I missed a, an important part. Uh, a young woman named Renee led me to Christ uh, when she was just 19 years old and a freshman at Cornell, and I was a senior. And uh, that's a long story, but uh, we've now been married 47 years uh, to, uh, to, to her. And, um, and so Renee and I have five kids. Um, four of them are above average. Uh, no, they all are above average. And uh, in fact, one of my sons is a pastor. I'm going to see him next week in, in uh, uh, North Carolina where he just took his first senior pastor gig. Um, anyway, so that's my family. Um, uh, Career-wise, uh, after Gillette, I went to Parker Brothers Games and thought I'd died and gone to heaven because I, I was getting paid to play games and play with Nerf balls and things like that. 
And uh, to my surprise, and even a greater surprise on my wife's part, I became the president of Parker Brothers when I was 33. She used to call me business boy. <laughs> and um, I got paid to play games. Uh, and we got into video games, and Frogger was one of my... Uh, it's your uh, best work. I brought Frogger to America, those that of you that are... That is your best work. Classic video game fans. Although and, I will say that <clears throat> I'm pretty sure the Ouija board's a Parker Brothers toy, too. Should we pray for you right now? Well... Uh, <laughs> How do you even know about the Ouija board, uh, <laughs> Tyler? You know. But uh, yeah, I, actually, I wanted to get rid of the Ouija board when I was there, but okay. it, was, uh, you know, it was kind of a hard thing to do. So uh, anyways, uh, I did nine years at Parker Brothers, got fired. Uh, that's another story. Uh, ended up uh, a year later at uh, Lenox China, uh, Fine China and Crystal. Thank you, ladies, for your support. Um, and I did 11 years at Lenox. I, I rose from kind of a division level guy to the CEO at Lenox. And uh, then in 1998, uh, a headhunter called, and uh, uh, it was about the World Vision job. Maybe we'll talk about that mm -hmm. in, in a minute. But um, so, to make a very long story short, um, uh, to my surprise, I was offered the job to be the leader of World Vision uh, out in Seattle, Washington. Uh, quit my job, uh, turned in my corporate Jaguar, sold my 10-bedroom house on five acres, took a vow of poverty, and moved to, uh, <laughs> moved to Seattle, Washington with my five kids, and uh, did 20 years at World Vision, and just retired in 2018, so. So, yeah, amen. So I want to come back to the World Vision transition for a second, because that's just an interesting part of your story. Before that, I love doing this with any guests that we have in an interview. I, I want to take you through just a lightning round, okay? I'm going to ask you just a handful of brief questions. Answer them as fast as possible. Again, this will help folks get to know you better. So um, first question, what are you reading right now? Well, I just finished uh, the biography of Eugene Peterson. It's called The Burning in My Bones. And Eugene Peterson, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, was a pastor and author most famous for writing the message translation of mm -hmm. scripture that made scripture more accessible to millions and millions of people around the world. Um, always been somebody I admired. You know, he passed away a few years ago and there's a wonderful biography called Burning in My Bones. How do you unwind? So now that I'm retired, Tyler, I am permanently unwound. I mean, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty wound pretty tight for a, lo a lot of years, 40 some years uh, in my career. And uh, it's just so wonderful to not, I don't even know where my alarm clock is anymore. I mean, uh, you know, and uh, it's wonderful to get up and have a, an hour and a half, two hour quiet time, you know, reading and praying and uh, just having more leisure activity. And, you know, I have seven grandsons uh, now and five kids and, you know, so I can be more of a grandpa and father uh, with my family. And, yeah. uh, so you said earlier that you and your wife had been married for 47 years, that's, that's amazing. With that experience under her belt with you, let me ask you, on a scale of one to 10, how impressed is she with you now? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd say on a good day, eight out of 10. You know, <laughs> that's and, a real uh, good day. You know, I, I think my wife looked at me as a lifelong project. You know, when she was okay. 19, she led me to Christ and uh, it's been an uphill push ever since then. Yeah. And in fact, it's funny thing, on our first day, blind date, you know, she shares the four spiritual laws with me on the first day. I'm an atheist at Cornell. And, and I'm an atheist, and I'm a senior. She's a freshman. And I thought, isn't this sweet? This child, 19 years old, is, is going to share the four spiritual laws with me. Uh, but she also, I also said, what are you going to be when you grow up, little girl? You know, and she said, oh, I'm going to law school, and I'm going to help the poor. I feel like God's called me to help the poor. And I said, well, that's really sweet. I said, 
she said, what about you? And I said, I'm going to become a CEO and make a lot of money. And she said, what a pathetic goal for your life, you know, <laughs> a pathetic goal. And uh, she did become a lawyer. We got married uh, a few years later. Uh, she did become, and I did become a CEO and made some money, you know. And, uh, uh, but guess who ended up helping the poor? Yeah. Uh, so that call to World Vision, I mean, God gave me the right spouse, right? Because when I said, look, we're going to have to take a 75% pay cut, sell our house on five acres, turn in the Jaguar, move our five squalling kids, pull them out of school and move them to a place where the sun never shines and the Mariners never win, Seattle, Washington. <laughs> she said, I'm in, you yeah. know, she said, I'm in. And a lot of corporate wives would have said over my dead body, you know, yeah. so. Uh, so uh, I ended up serving the poor because the Lord gave me the right wife. But. Speaking of your kids, you got five kids. I'm sure some of them are watching this morning, so let's just go ahead and make it official. Uh, which is your favorite? <laughs> Fine, thank you. Um, they're, they're all above average. Uh, they're all unique in their own ways. What's one thing that would surprise us about you? Um, like one fun all right, fact. Uh, two things. I collect superhero comic books from the 1960s. Kind of a weird thing. I told Tyler the whole story in the car. Um, it reminds me of my childhood, challenged childhood. Uh, but here's another one. Uh, I once gave a Bible to President Bill Clinton in a men's room. And if you want to hear more about that story, you know, shoot me an email or something. That's but, an uh, interesting one. I think we'll leave that one for the PG-13. He accepted it graciously. I don't know if he ever read it. But. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Uh, this one's even more important. All right, this is going to be make or break for some of the people in the audience as to whether or not they stay for the rest of the service. Uh, cats or cards? You think I'm going to walk into that trap? <laughs> the Fifth Amendment. I'll plead the Fifth Amendment. Uh, I think they're both fabulous. And yeah, yeah, that's why you need a mentor, young people. Okay, this morning. All right. Um, you said earlier that you started with deodorant, and then you transitioned into toys, and then you moved to fine china. <laughs> That's quite the yeah. journey. And then somehow you ended up at World Vision. Talk a little bit about that calling from Linux to World Vision. Yeah, so, you know, I was in my 40s, and um, doing well in my career. I was the CEO of Linux, you know, nationally known company, and I remember going out for long, soulful dinners with my wife back when we could go to restaurants, you know, more easily. And uh, saying, you know, I, I could probably retire when I'm 55. And she said, well, good, we'll go on the mission field. And I said, mission field? I'm thinking golf and, you know, and she said, we're not going to waste our lives playing golf. Or, you know, if you're going to retire at 55, we're going on the mission field. And I said, honey, I make a terrible missionary. I said, you know, I had this image of missionaries that they hack their way through the jungle and they build an irrigation system with a machete and bamboo, you know, yeah. and, and it's like I can't hang a picture on the wall without calling 911 or something to get some help. In fact, my wife is the handyman in our family. She wallpapers, she paints, you know, I watch, you know, and because once I cut her when I was trying to help her wall, I almost cut her finger off and she's, that's it, get out of yeah. here, you know, I'll do that. But anyways, uh, so uh, World Vision, uh, called me in 1998, CEO of Linux, um, and it was a headhunter that called, and basically, you know, he kind of went through his whole spiel, I'm looking, World Vision looking for a new leader, and, you know, we got your name because we'd been donors to World Vision for about 15 years at that point, my wife and I, we really believed in the ministry, and I actually knew the CEO because he used to come to town and he'd meet with us for breakfast and things like that, try to get more money out of us, <laughs> and um, so... Uh, 
you know, I basically said, look, I, I don't know anybody that would be qualified for that job. In fact, I, I remember saying to him, you know, it sounds like you're looking for somebody that's part CEO, part Mother Teresa, and part Indiana Jones. And uh, <laughs> I said, I'm part CEO, but I don't know if I've got the other two qualities. And so uh, I just kept trying to say, you know, I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, you don't want to, I'll think about maybe somebody I know, making all kinds of excuses. And finally he said, Rich, let me ask you a different question. Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Now, what a terrible question to ask somebody, you know, are you willing to be, you know, a very, very personal question. And so I said, well, and I knew this was a dangerous meeting at the time. And I said, well, yes, of course I want to be open to God's will for my life. I'm just pretty sure this is not it, you know. And I said, I've, I have no fundraising experience. I've never been to seminary. I'm running a luxury goods company, for heaven's sakes. I've never been to Africa. I've never met a person in abject poverty. Other than that, I'm a perfect candidate. And, and he just said, he said, you know, there's something, I've talked to 200 people about this job, and the Holy Spirit is telling me that we need to meet. And uh, I said, do you say that to all the candidates? You know, uh, yeah. and he said, no, I, he said, I'm really serious. We need to meet. And I said, well, yeah, I, I, all right, but you've got to come to me, and I'll, I'll meet you for dinner if you fly to my hometown. And so I did, and, you know, it, it began quite a long story, but uh, I was kicking and screaming. I mean, I was like Jonah. I was going to get on the first boat out. You know, I didn't want to go and do World Vision. I didn't want to leave my career. I didn't want to take a pay cut. I didn't want, uh, I didn't think I was qualified. And uh, uh, so I actually, the board selected me. I went through the interview process believing that surely no board of directors in their right mind is going to select somebody that has no credentials, who's running a luxury goods company, who used to sell Nerf balls and Monopoly games uh, at Parker Brothers. And uh, the board chose me, and I actually turned down the job. I, I did not have the courage to do it. And the Holy Spirit, like, racked me with guilt and pain and anxiety. And, um, and it was like the story of the rich young ruler that you remember in Scripture where... Mm. Uh, he comes to Jesus and he says, you know, uh, Jesus, I've been, I've been a good Jew. You know, I've tied my income. I go to temple. I'm well known. Um, is there anything I still lack? I even think of this young man as kind of braggy, you know, that, is there anything I still lack, rabbi? Here's this kind of dirty rabbi that's traipsing around the countryside. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And I wanted to tear that page out of my Bible at that moment when World Vision was inviting me. And my wife is like, are you going to do this or not? We need to know because we're going to have to sell the house, and we got stuff to do, and, you know, you know, man up here. You know, make a decision. And I was like a whimpering, sniveling mess. You know, I was like, I don't want to do this. And so I actually turned the job down, but I was so racked with anxiety afterwards that I read the end of that rich young ruler story. Mm -hmm. It said he went away very sad yeah. because he had great wealth. Wow. He couldn't do it. And I thought, am I that person? Am I that rich young ruler who's going to go away very sad and maybe miss the great blessings God has in store? And so I called World Vision back and I said, I don't know if you'll still have me or want me, but let's do a season of prayer for a few days and let's compare notes at the end of that. And if you still believe that I'm the one that God is chose, choosing, you know, I'll do it, you know. And so we did. And my, sorry, my 10-year-old son is now a pastor. He said, Dad, I'm going to fast for 24 hours. 
I'm, will you fast with me, Dad? And I'm thinking my 10-year-old my is more of a man than I am, you know. Wow. And uh, so we did. We fasted for 24 hours. We prayed. And the board did the same kind of thing. And I got called the next week. And they said, the board still is unanimous. They want to call you to World Vision. And so we packed up our family, uh, sold our 10-bedroom house on five acres, turned in the corporate Jaguar, took a 75% pay cut with a big gulp uh, <laughs> and moved our five kids to Seattle, Washington. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and then the next 20 years were the greatest gift to me, to my family, to travel the world as an ambassador for Christ, to see the work helping the poor, um, uh, to see how big God is in our world, in every culture, in every nation, you know, yeah. just was amazing. Uh, so, so the book I see, I praise God. The book I suggested earlier, A Hole in Our Gospel, talks a little bit about your theological mindset, your heart for the poor, <clears throat> tells some great stories. Y'all should get that. But today I want to recommend to everyone to buy your newest book, Lead Like It Matters to God, um, because I think it is so practical for the leaders in the workplace in this room. And we're constantly preaching about how you spend, most of our folks spend 50, 60 hours a week in the workplace. You got to live for Jesus there too, or else you ain't living for Jesus, right? So um, in the book, you talk about a values, uh, a values-driven approach in a success-driven world. In fact, you unpack 17 leadership values in the book. I think we have a slide with all of them on there. Um, and uh, after you introduce it, like each, you have a chapter devoted to each value, which I found as a good devotional tool because I would read about one of those values in the morning and then pray over how I might be able to apply it. But tell us more about values-driven leadership and how it challenges other approaches to leadership. So in America, we live in this success-driven culture, right? Uh, we, we honor the most famous celebrities, the fastest-growing companies, the wealthiest people in the Fortune or the Forbes 400. Um, we are marinating in a success-driven world in right. the United States, probably more than most countries in the world. And uh, in the book, I, I noticed a few weeks ago in your sermon, you stole this line from me, that yes. it's, success is like a colorless, odorless gas that we're all breathing. We all want our kids to be successful. We want our teams to win and, you know, be successful. We, uh, we want to be successful. And uh, success as it turns out, like any good thing, can become toxic in our lives. It can become an idol in our lives. And so as a leader, especially a leader that is being tempted every day with more responsibility, more money, more opportunity, uh, more people under your leadership, uh, it can become intoxicating. Uh, and, and it can draw you away from your faith and your Lord. And kind of like that analogy earlier in the service with a branch that's been cut off from the vine, right? Mm -hmm. that, Eventually, it looks like just a stick that's withered and died because it's cut itself off from the vine. And so, uh, values-driven leadership is to say, wait a minute, I'm going to lead from my Christian values. I'm going to lead with integrity. I'm going to lead with courage. I'm going to lead with perseverance and compassion and, and, and uh, love for the people that work for me. I'm going to see my workplace as a mission field where I'm an ambassador for Christ uh, in that mission field. And... Um, so I'm going to try to do things out of that framework led by my values, and hopefully I'll be successful as well. But I'm not going to make success the goal. There's a story, Tyler, that inspired me writing this book. It's a story about Mother Teresa. And uh, the story goes that in the early 80s, I think it was, Senator Mark Hatfield from Oregon 
visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India. And imagine this little nun, four foot nine, she's got the, the Sisters of Charity. They have a, a little operation in, in an ocean of poverty in the slums of Calcutta. And Mother Teresa every day is ministering to the sick and the dying on the streets of Calcutta. And the senator quickly put two and two together and said something like this to Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, with all due respect, don't you feel like a failure? I mean, you are surrounded by an ocean of poverty. You could never possibly succeed in eradicating poverty in Calcutta alone, let alone all of India or the rest of the world. Don't you sometimes feel like a failure? And the story goes that Mother Teresa looked up at him, four foot nine, and wagged her finger and said, my dear senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And I heard that story years ago when I started at World Vision, and I thought, how profound. God doesn't care if any of us are successful by the world standards. He does care if we're faithful. He does care if we're faithful. And so that kind of became my mantra. How can I be faithful, not successful? Faithful, not successful. So <clears throat> a faithful leader in the workplace is an ambassador for Christ, right? Mm -hmm. A faithful leader cares about the people under their leadership. A faithful person puts others ahead of themselves. Um, the well-being of their employees, um, helping them to be successful. They're almost like a good orchestra conductor that the orchestra conductor is trying to bring the beautiful music out of the musicians, not trying to be the star of the whole production, right? Uh, bringing the music out of the people. And so uh, as leaders, whether you're a leader in the home or the community or in a workplace, um, if you can be a faithful leader driven by your values, your Christian values, I, I sometimes use the metaphor of a thermostat and a thermometer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a thermometer reads the temperature in the room and becomes the temperature in the room a thermostat changes the temperature in the room. So whatever culture you work in or live in, you can be that thermostat that you can change the temperature, you can change the culture if you take your faith to work with you and you become that kind of leader. And by the way, if you are uh, faithful uh, and you lead with those values, you're probably much more likely to actually be successful as a byproduct of your faithfulness because every company wants to hire somebody who has integrity, who has courage, who has perseverance, who's a good listener, who cares about their employees. Uh, every company wants to hire people like that. Mm -hmm. And so you're likely to be successful as a byproduct, not because success was your goal, but because faithfulness was your goal. Yeah. I, I love how you articulated it in the book. You talked about uh, how the uh, end doesn't justify the means. The means... <coughs> Are, 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 are justify the end, you know? Like you can't justify um, a good end with faulty means, which is what a lot of us do. We put success as the target or success as a goal, and then it ends up poisoning the means through which we get there. You yeah. know, we end up making compromises along the way. In fact, you gave a couple examples in the book of how good things were poisoned or compromised, yeah. if you will, and so the means ended up going sideways. You give maybe one example yeah, so of that. One, one good example of that is uh, my wife and I just watched this uh, series on the opioid pandemic called Dope Sick. If you haven't watched it, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And it's the story of how opioid drugs that started off as a way to help people manage severe medical pain, the companies that introduced the opioids uh, actually started with good motives, right? We want to help people that are in terrible pain because of medical problems. 
and these drugs can help them manage the pain. But over time, that more noble purpose of helping people manage their pain became a drive for more and more profits, right? We need to sell more and more opioids, higher and higher dosages, because we have to increase our earnings per share every year. Uh, and, and so uh, Purdue Pharma was, I, I think, the company that, that, that was at the center of this and a number of other pharmaceutical companies. Well, it led to this horrible epidemic of addiction in the United States to the point where these companies, by pushing more and more opioid drugs, were killing their own patients, their own customers, literally killing their own customers. The number of opioid deaths a year, it's, it's over 50,000 people a year die of these opioid overdoses. And uh, so it's a good example of where success became the goal, financial success, and it overshadowed the values, uh, the original values of helping people with medical problems manage their pain. And greed took over. And, it's so easy, you know, look at it in our politics, you know, maybe a politician goes into public office with an idealistic notion as I can make a difference, I can help people, I can help our country, I can serve our country, but eventually it becomes I'll do and say anything it takes to get elected, right? Mm -hmm. it, the, the, the ends justify the means. I, I need to stay in power and we've seen corrupt politicians and the damage that they can do and we've seen it in the Me Too movement. Um, we've, we've seen how uh, people in power abused their power and, and abused women in the workplace. And, uh, and sadly, we've seen it within the church, too. Yeah. We've seen sexual abuse scandals in the church, and we've seen high-profile Christian leaders fall from grace. Um, I won't name them. You, you know many of their names. Um, because they, they lost their, their moorings, right? And they went chasing after celebrity or fame or success or church growth or whatever you want to put in that box, and it, it led them away from their Christian witness and where the Lord would want them to go. So, yeah, so success is a very powerful drug, and uh, there's nothing wrong with being successful, but as my wife said when she was 19, that's a pr pretty pathetic life goal, mm. to be successful, you yeah. know, uh, unless you define success as being a faithful servant of Christ. Now, that's a goal that's worthy of a life goal. So. True that. God has a different scoreboard. Yeah. Than our, than our world does. Okay, so we have a saying around here. It's kind of our mission statement as a church. Uh, we unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere, in the home, workplace, city, and church, um, uh, or, or in school. Uh, the, our students uh, add that because th those are the arenas of our lives that we spend most of our time in. And so that's our mission field that God's given us. So I, I know there have got a lot of leaders in our church who um, are going to uh, turn the page on Sunday. It's going to be Monday. Um, and uh, you know, they'll, they'll, go, they'll go to Mexican restaurant after church because it's somewhere in the Bible, okay? And then they'll take their church hat off officially and put on their work hat. And, uh, and they have this tendency to even compartmentalize uh, their faith. And they don't want to. They want to take Jesus into the workspace. It's just hard because it's a non-religious environment. For some of our people, it could be uh, hostile towards religion at their workspace. So I guess my question for you would be, what sort of advice might you give our folks on how to take their, their faith into non-religious workspaces and, um, and, and share, share Jesus' uh, Jesus love with their coworkers? <clears throat> so we, we talked earlier about that verse um, from 2 Corinthians. You know, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. And 
that actually became my life verse. Uh, if, if, if you have a life verse, you know, if I had one, that would be mine. There's a lot of verses that I love, but, uh, and I had that stenciled on my wall at World Vision. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so wherever you live and work, uh, that verse tells you, you are Christ's ambassadors. And God is actually making his appeal through broken, fallen, fallible people like you and me. He's making his appeal to your community, to your neighborhood, to your workplace. Um, you're an ambassador for Christ, whether you want to be or not. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a Christian, Paul says that we're ambassadors for Christ. And so, so what does that look like in, in our lives? And one of the reasons I wrote Lead Like It Matters to God is I, I felt like a lot of Christians have that temptation to check their faith at the door. And, then, and they say, you know, you don't understand my workplace. My workplace is hostile to things like this. My workplace... Uh, it's not a safe place for a Christian to be. I'd be made fun of if people knew I was a born-again Christian in my workplace. And so, you know, again, it's that thermostat analogy. So am I going to go into my workplace and be more like a, a thermometer that takes on the temperature of the room and I adopt that culture and operate according to their rules? Or am I going to go in like a thermostat and actually change the temperature of the room? And I think God wants us to take our faith to work for to work with us, you know, to take it into our neighborhoods, to not compartmentalize our lives in such a way that we're faithful when we're home with our family and on Sunday at church, but then we put on the full armor of the world when we go to work on Monday morning. And now, this doesn't mean that if you're in a workplace that you go office to office, cubicle to cubicle with the four spiritual laws sharing your faith, you'd get fired pretty quickly in most workplaces for doing that. It means living out the gospel in full view of your co-workers and to be that ambassador for Christ. And what does an ambassador do? If you think of your workplace or even your community, an ambassador represents the values, the priorities, and the character of the one that sends them. If you're the American ambassador to the UK, uh, you represent the interests, the values, and the integrity of America to the British people, right? You're, You're there as a representative. So you're a representative for Christ in your community or in your workplace, and you want to be a faithful ambassador. You can even, might even take one of your business cards and cross out your title and write ambassador for Christ and put that on your desk somewhere where you can see it every day and remind yourself that you're an ambassador for Christ. And, you know, we're not perfect ambassadors. Um, most of you are thinking, well, I'm, a, I'm not good in those faith discussions and, you know, people, I get tongue-tied and all of that. Here's, a, here's some news for you is God can use you anyways. Um, uh, There's a saying that I came up with late in my life. I wish I'd had this idea sooner. Uh, What God is doing through you involves you, but it does not depend on you. It involves you, but it does not depend on you. And let me give you a few examples from Scripture. So Moses was a sniveling coward who begged the Lord not to send him to confront the Pharaoh. He was 80 years old, probably looking forward to a few more years of retirement. And uh, the Lord says, go and confront the most powerful man in the world and tell him you want to set the people of Israel free. And Moses begged him not to do it. Uh, But eventually he agreed. Um, And what God was doing through Moses involved his obedience, but it didn't depend on Moses. God brought the 10 plagues on Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. We saw it in the movie with Charlton Heston. (laughs) And... um, Uh, So God used Moses' faithfulness. Take David. 
David was the runt of Jesse's litter. You know, Jesse didn't even bring him to the meeting with the prophet Samuel because he had seven other sons that were like Sigma Chi, three lettermen. And uh, David was the runt of the litter. And God chose David. Samuel chose David to be the king. And of course, David famously faced Goliath, right? But David was involved in the slaying of Goliath. But the outcome did not depend on him. It was God that directed that stone, right? David was obedient, and God used him. And my favorite example is maybe the apostle Peter. You know, Peter oh, yeah. uh, was an impetuous, headstrong guy. Um, he always had a penchant for saying the wrong thing, blurting out the wrong thing at the wrong time. <clears throat> headstrong, impulsive. And yet Jesus chose Peter to lead the first century church. He chose this flawed human being. If you'd been in the HR department and Peter had sent his resume in, fisherman, impulsivity disorder, you know, I want to lead the first century church after Jesus, uh, you know, is resurrected and goes to heaven to be with the Father, you would have thrown it in the basket and probably wouldn't even taken the resume to Jesus. Uh, he had none of the qualifications. He denied Jesus three times after the crucifixion. Um, but Jesus chose him, you see, and Peter was faithful uh, for the next 20, 30, 40 years, not successful, faithful. Peter himself, probably in the year 66 AD when he was crucified upside down and martyred for his faith, probably looked at his leadership of the church and said, what a failure I've been. Mm. If you'd been a reporter in Jerusalem in 66 AD, you would have been writing that this upstart movement called Christianity is dying. The Romans have persecuted them. The Jews have rejected them. There are divisions within the church. It's not looking good for this new religion called Christianity. And Peter probably went to his death thinking, I failed the Lord again. But you see, what God was doing through Peter, it involved him, but it did not depend on him, the outcome. And God used Peter and those other disciples to change the world. Today, there are two and a half billion Christians on the planet, the largest religious movement in the history of the human race. And it started with flawed people like Peter who said, I'm just going to try to be faithful. I'm just going to try to put one foot in front of the other. I'm flawed. I, I make mistakes, but I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And Lord, I'm going to leave it to you to change the world. And Jesus did. And when you do that in your workplace, in your community, in your family, uh, Jesus can use you to change the world too. Amen. <laughs> Let's do an altar call and wrap this thing up. Jeez, I love it. Well, hey, we have uh, simply ran out of time, uh, but I want to thank you on behalf of our church for, uh, for your investment in me and your investment in us today. Thanks for coming down from uh, Seattle. Thanks for your book, and thanks for your wise, uh, wise words. We, we all appreciate it, Rich. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. And uh, here, here's what I'm going to ask you to do while, while you're standing. Hey, Rich, you can, uh, if you want to, you can uh, step off back, and I'll, I'll meet you back there. But I, I want to pray over our, our church uh, just briefly. Uh, yeah, we'll just, okay, we'll just, I just want to pray over you all briefly uh, as you go out into the mission field of your workspace. And uh, hopefully you, you receive this blessing and, and the power of God as you go into your week. And then uh, I'll invite Richard up to close us. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for a church that takes their, their calling as an ambassador seriously. I pray that this time today was, was just an outpouring of, of inspiration, of practical wisdom, of, of energy and desire to go and live for you outside of the four walls of this church building. I pray that you will give everyone in this uh, church just a, a special attunement this week to the opportunities to love well on Jesus's behalf, whether it's the person in the cube next to them or people on their team who are going through a, a tough time or an actual opportunity to share about their faith and why it is that they are the way they are with someone else in the workspace. Just attune us to that. Give us the words and the peace in that moment and help us to love well on your behalf. We are so thankful that we have the truth. We have the way. We have been filled with this gift of new life. God, give us opportunity, give us wisdom, and give us energy and excitement to share it with others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.